1: Welcome to LawPod. My name is Debra Mossel and I'm joined by Charlotte Gurley. This episode will be about racism in Northern Ireland and the Belfast protests, which occurred in June in 2020, and the PSNI's handling of the BLM protests. We hope to open up a conversation about the inequalities and discrimination faced by minorities in Northern Ireland, specifically Black people. In this episode, we are joined by Cassie Logan, who is a law student from North Belfast and has been very vocal on social media in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement and also attended these protests. Tara Ruttera is also an activist who attended the Belfast protests and spoke at the rallies. He has been very outspoken on his dealings with the PSNI and the way in which they showed bias in their handling of the protests. We are also joined by Sinead Mormon from Phoenix Law in Belfast. She will be here to provide a legal perspective in relation to the racial issues in Northern Ireland and has provided legal advice to protesters who were issued with fines during the June protests.
2: So the first topic we want to cover is the actual Belfast BLM protests. So Cassie and Tara, you were obviously there. What was the atmosphere of the Belfast protests like? How was the speaking at the protests?
3: The atmosphere was just was kind of like surreal because I've never really been to anything mm. like that. And yeah. I didn't expect there to be so much support for it. So when I went down and you seen the crowd and it was absolutely massive, I think it was just really, really encouraging. And I felt like now was like the time or like finally the time I came where people were starting to listen to people who have been talking about racial issues for years now.
4: And And even though there was loads of people there... There was a social distancing yeah. and it was yeah. well organized in terms of United Against Racism and the volunteers who had put their time to, you know, to ensure that there was social distancing and that there was a also stewards to help people and, and remind mm-hmm. people of the social distancing um, so that people met the regulations, you know, for COVID.
1: Yeah, I mean, even from videos, I was able to say, you know, everyone was wearing their masks and there was social distancing. So obviously there was that awareness of, Although they were out there protesting for something that was massively important, you know, everybody's health also came first. And, you know, I think there was a real awareness of that, which is why it was so shocking whenever the PSNI dealt with it in a way which has been so, so criticized.
4: You know, whenever, for example, uh, when I arrived at the Custom House Square, there was just loads of police wearing Mm -hmm. the riot gear. Right. you know very heavy police presence and even the way they were like when I arrived two police officers uh, approached me and immediately started asking me where are you going what are yeah. you doing if you go to that event we will give you a fine and you'll be liable oh, for prosecution it's and I said okay well it, that was that that was yeah, the intention it's
2: not, yeah it's very very intimidating
4: The intention was to intimidate.
2: And do you think the PSNI were particularly biased in their approach to the BLM protests compared to, you know, previous protests? When did you realise this?
4: You know, the 5th of of June, right, at 11 o'clock, the MLAs met at Stormont and they passed a law. And the purpose of this law was to enable police to behave a certain way towards the Black Lives Matter because mm-hmm. this happened on the night before the Black Lives Matter protest. So the atmosphere was set. And when the first and deputy first minister made statements where they were saying, we, you know, where they were suggesting that people should not go and protest, people should protest at home, mm-hmm. people should do their, their protest in a different way, in such a way that they were not, you know, they were not cognizant, they are not taking cognizance of what the impact of George Floyd had done to the whole community.
3: And yeah. I think, like, you know, those protests that had happened after, and it was either mm-hmm. anti mask or, ma- or like those like statue protectors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. They had happened after. And what kind of like really angered me was I was actually on TikTok and mm-hmm. a video had come up of these like protests but it was of a police woman and she was like in the middle of one of those protests like laughing and joking she wasn't wearing mm-hmm. PPE, and she was joking with those protesters about standing and like about social distancing so she mm-hmm. was having a joke with them about yeah. it while not wearing yeah. ppa and then it came out that none of those protesters had got fines but yet yeah. L M mm-hmm. people who were social distancing and not wearing
1: ppa got fines I think before as you said, Tara, that, you know, the law that was passed the night before, I think by doing that and by the actions of the PSANI, they had already set the tone for how they wanted to approach it. Do you know what I mean? So I think to them, it didn't matter that anyone was going to be wearing wearing masks. It it didn't matter that there was going to be social distancing. They had already determined how they wanted to approach it, regardless of the circumstances. And, you know, whenever, especially when there's such a clear difference between how they approached the Black Lives Matter protests and how they approached these anti-mask protests, when, when there's such a clear difference and such a clear bias as well, that's what really angers people. And you know, it just really, really amplifies the message even more that the racism is there, and you can't yeah. you can't claim otherwise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know,
4: whenever the the, the Chinese embassy protest took place on the tenth
1: yeah.
4: of June, and mm-hmm. and there were there were not social distancing. They were not treated heavy-handedly by the police. And then the Protect Our Statues, which I think Cassie just mentioned that earlier, Protect Our Statues, they were not even wearing any masks. They were not mm-hmm. even social distancing. In fact, they were fraternizing with the police, joking with the police. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and whoever said in the Black Lives Movement in Ulster, in, in, in the North, whoever said that we were going to attack those statues, nobody yeah. in Belfast ever said that it. That never happened. So it's like people make stories up, far-right people make stories up, some politicians make stories up, and they justify treating black people a certain way. Was it mm-hmm. one of the a Lisbon councillors uh, called Gavin, who was the, 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 the mayor of Lisbon, mm-hmm. he he said that Black Lives Matter people are anti-family, they are anti I saw that,
1: yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. I saw that. <laughs> It's, it's unbelievable. Honestly, I think they really go out of their way to create these far off narratives and people will just eat it up straight away without even, you know, thinking about it and maybe even trying to consider what we're asking for. Yeah. And that's how these things happen where, you know, the police deals with it in such a ridiculous way and people have these, you know, far right views because they're just eating up whatever narrative is given to them. Without any sort of, you know, critical thinking.
4: Yes, but this is the culture that when you're black, especially when you're African, Mm -hmm. and you have lived through 500 years of slavery, and Mm. we have been traumatized to such an extent that a lot of us have been beaten down. They're just so obedient. Mm -hmm. And the police know that, you know, this hostile environment that was created by Theresa May This bullying, harassing, aggressive policing towards black people. You know, there was a statistic that during COVID, they stopped about 20,000 young black men during stops and searches in England. And only 20% of them led to something beyond the stop and search.
1: And that's where that, you know, over-representation of black people comes from. You know, when it comes to police statistics and everything, because black people, especially young black men, they're so much more overpoliced, especially with in a situation with COVID where even then they're still getting overpoliced, you know, asking them, why are you outside? Do you know what I mean? So that statistic honestly doesn't surprise me whatsoever. So my next question really was, do you think that the PSNI's actions are a demonstration of institutional racism then from the way that they went about it, how they handled the protests?
4: So we got the report from the policing board mm-hmm. and that already suggested that uh, the PSNI may have behaved unlawfully
0: mm-hmm.
5: yes,
4: and and misinterpreted mm-hmm. the law. I know Sinead knows a lot more about this area.
5: Yeah, so the policing board report basically stated that it, the approach was unlawful in terms of how the police had construed the regulations in line with human rights law, mm-hmm. which effectively they haven't, done they didn't do making it unlawful because as we know you know human rights must be must be at the heart of any public authorities decision making and any construction of, of the regulations that should be considered at the heart of that construction mm. so the policing board confirmed that that balance and that um, regard to the human rights act in relation to regulations was not done specifically in relation to the right to protest and the right to Freedom expression. So, the Tura says, you know, the police board report is highly important uh, in respect of that. But also, what you're saying there in relation to the other protests is, is another angle that we need to think about in terms of the awfulness of the protests. So, I think we'll probably touch on this a bit later, but the actual policing of the protests on the 6th of June Belfast and Derry strikingly different from those other protests that you've mentioned and um, the messaging of the police and the policing on the day wasn't really there to protect the public it was more mm-hmm. as an adversary the role um, was very you know adverse to, to protecting the public
0: mm-hmm.
5: and then you have to look about discriminatory policing in that re- in that regard when you compare it with other other protests around the time but I think Tura has been talking about this recently but that's supposed to all come out within the police ambulance report which we're all awaiting for eagerly Mm -hmm. and there's significant delays in
1: that yeah i actually i have a quote here from john Wadham, who's the human rights advisor from the policing board and Mm -hmm. it says here that he stated the psni approach sent the wrong message to protesters and damaged the reputation of the psni and the confidence of some of the members of the public and i think that's exactly right i mean at the end of the day as you said when he said sent the wrong message the message was like he said that he wasn't that they weren't there to protect the public rather yeah. they were there to act as a hostile force and just really show like a really biased approach when it came to how they dealt with it.
5: Definitely and I think that was very much how it felt on the ground for a lot of people too. Two of my colleagues were going on the day and I was kind of Waiting by the phone here, Mona and Dara Mackin were down arguing with officers about construction of the regulations and, and mm. whether it was lawful. And certainly, from what they say, the police didn't really understand what they were enforcing or how they were enforcing it. How how their actions may have been actually extremely unsafe. And people were reporting like a lot of bottleneck and entrances and exits mm-hmm. because police were preventing people moving in a uniform way that was you know, highly organised by the stewards and the organisers. So, in fact, they actually created an unsafe environment when it could have been, you know, designed properly and organised properly to run smoothly.
1: Yeah, I think what would have been a, a really safe and well-organised protest became, you know, unsafe, which, yeah. I mean, really, you do have the psa to blame for that in relation to the bottlenecking and, and all the rest.
4: You also notice that if you look at the tweets from the PSNI during that period, they were sending conflicting messages. The PSNI was sending, you know, one day, one minute, Alan Todd, the, one of the senior officers, says, we will not be prosecuting protesters. And the next thing, another senior member, Robert, says, we will be prosecuting protesters. Mm-hmm. And the next breath, the prime minister is saying we will not be prosecuting or giving fines to people who are going to be involved in peaceful protest, you know. And so these conflicting messages at the highest level.
5: Yeah, that was definitely apparent. It seemed to be that there was some sort of decision made on the day, or either or the day before, about how it actually... Police the protest because I think on the third of June, to, to correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a tweet put out that from the third of June protest at the city hall. It said it would be a waste of police time and resources to spend all these hours processing any potential infractions of the regulations. And that was that was removed, isn't that right? That was taken That's down. right. it was taken down. Yeah, and it was taken down. And then in the police interviews, I attended, I referenced it and said, look, you are giving a mixed message to the public, and this makes these interview is even more ridiculous and unbelievable yeah. that the public have a legitimate kind of expectation not to be pursued If you know from a high level police officer and then mm. the next minute they're in a police station being questioned about it.
2: So Sinead from a legal perspective would you agree with the Equality Commission NI that there should be a race law reform here and could you explain how that could be done?
5: Yeah uh, they definitely think there should be a reform it needs to be something that is implemented quickly and in tandem with the general public awareness, which has been raised this year specifically, about racial inequality in Northern Ireland. Because, I mean, I think it's fairly apparent (laughs) in the past few months that it certainly needs looked at. But at the same time, you know, it can't be cursory, it can't be tick box exercise, it can't be just to please people. It needs to be actually meaningful.
4: That's exactly true. That's exactly. It. You, you know. You know. Shanite, you just said something there that is meaningful.
5: Yeah, it needs to be meaningful. It needs to engage the wider communities who are on a daily basis discriminated against not taken seriously but even arising out of the fact that the police I mean our race hate statistics are through the roof and that's mm-hmm. only for people that report it I've dealt with clients who reported race hate crimes and they haven't been investigated by police properly mm-hmm. or investigated at all so I think there needs to be an overhaul and a complete review of how everything goes on but I, I think here we're very much obsessed with our own internal issues and communities and it just shadows hunting. everything
3: else Everything is so yeah. um, green and orange here. I think. Yeah. Uh, no, it really, really is. Uh-huh. There's no room for any other thing or color. That's all anyone ever concentrates on.
4: I, I sort of say that it, it it it's not only this little island which I call experiment colonialism A.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so true though I, and I think when it's something that's so so deep rooted and at the same time it gets so overshadowed by other issues as well it's so easy to sweep under the carpet for people that aren't actually experiencing it and Sinead like you said I think a complete reform is needed um, for like you said anything meaningful to happen. What is being reformed? There's been nothing, there, there, there's been nothing
4: so you know the race relations order in 1997 is. am I right Sinead in quoting
1: that? Yeah that's right
5: yeah
4: you know, since the Equality Commission was established, mm-hmm. the most successful thing that the Equality Commission has achieved is to get a nominal for the chief executive. Mm-hmm. The, you know, Evelyn Collins uh, and, and the Equality Commission are part of the matrix of the status quo. So I'm saying this as a person who has experience of dealing with the Equality Commission. Yeah. The Equality Commission is a toothless dog.
1: Just not committed to any real change, any meaningful change. Because is
4: part of the problem. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Equality Commission, right, has not done anything significant for the advancement of race legislation in Northern Ireland. If anything, it has managed to keep the status quo. Race mm-hmm. relations have got worse since the Equality Commission was established. The Equality Commission is not a trusted organization by people of color either, so people don't report.
1: Yeah, and Charlotte, you had a statistic there about I think it was out of all the the hate crimes that were reported, so it's only something like seventeen percent
2: resulted in prosecution or a warning to the offenders. Uh, So that meant that 83% recorded race hate crimes did not result in a prosecution or even a warning to offenders. So Sinead or Ture, why do you think that is?
4: Because the government at the highest level is not committed to race relations Mm -hmm. because the government is institutionally racist Because the people at the top of the government and the people who are running the government leading the conversations racism conversations, diversity conversations are being led by the perpetrator of those inequalities. You know, that's the equivalent of having the Nazis running post of Germany and post-Europe,
0: yeah. mm-hmm. post-Europe
4: mm-hmm. transformation. You know, like, you know, like this whole issue of the Finucane, for example, the Finucane, the, the whole issue of uh, the Pat Finucane inquiry. You have somebody like Brandon Lewis, the, the Secretary of State, saying that he will not establish a public inquiry at this time. And mm-hmm. he's excluding the possibility that... Okay, there might be in the future, but at the minute I'm excluding a, a public inquiry. And he's suggesting that, oh, the reason for this is because uh, the PSNI and the police ombudsman are involved in some fact finding investigations. And then the next breath you hear Chief Constable Byrne say, I'm not doing an investigation. And then you hear, uh, you know, Anderson, Ms. Anderson saying, We're not doing an investigation. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State, is involved in shape shifting the conversation and ensuring that the conversation doesn't deal with the real critical issues of mm-hmm. oppression, subjugation, slavery and colonialism. Do you know what Nuala Olon said? She says, I don't think the British government has an appetite for an inquiry.
1: No, and, and they don't. They don't. Sure. Why, why would they? You know, because to have an appetite for an inquiry, that would mean actually taking responsibility, which we've seen time and time again that they refuse to do. So, so why would they?
4: where would they and that's
1: what that's what, that's what happens
4: that's what happens when we have the perpetrator being the judge jury and executioner you know these things have to be taken to an international court where these powerful families and powerful institutions who are implicated in these types of inequalities mm-hmm. can begin to be held accountable and i'm saying that british government the police the psni really behaved in a manner that was hostile and has been mm-hmm. like that for a very long time
1: it's nothing new. doesn't. No. It it's it's, it's nothing new whatsoever. And I think the reason that the hostility was there at the end of the day because they feared the change that people would actually bring with the protests, and they fear that reformation that everybody's calling for because they know at the end of the day the people that are at the very top, if that reformation happens, then they lose the benefits of b- being privileged. Do you know what I mean? And they lose the benefits of being able to oppress minorities and black people in the United Kingdom and in the rest of the world, of of course. So that's where that comes from, is that fear of reformation because they know that it won't benefit them in any way whatsoever. It will disadvantage them.
4: Would you continence the idea that, you know, after the French Revolution, yeah, Mm -hmm. 1789, after the French Revolution and Britain didn't have a revolution, that somehow Britain managed to stay in the feudal, in a semi-feudal state in terms of even... You know, when you go to France, there's this kind of freedom about being in France. And in terms of even the access that black people, African people have to cultural spaces in France, you know, you're more likely to hear African music blasting in France, in Paris than you are in Belfast, than you are in London.
1: That's really, really true, because at the end of the day, if you're blasting African music, then you may as well be opening yourself up to some sort of verbal abuse or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because you can can nearly expect it, because that's the tone of, you know, society here. And that's what, you know, really blows my mind when people can turn around and say that, oh, no, racism doesn't happen here, because it does. And, you know, we experience it every single day and we're aware of it every single day. So... For somebody to be able to say that racism doesn't happen is just because they're privileged enough to never have to experience it in their life.
5: I think as well, there's just from what you know, my recent experiences are. You know, clients who have come to me with you know racial issues. They, a lot of the things that they say and a lot of things I hear is that you know calling people out as racist seems to be more. <laughs> more offensive than the racism itself
1: yeah um, I, know. Uh-huh. <laughs> people, I know people will do anything not to be rounded a racist exactly, they will yeah, they, do anything
5: I think it's like maybe a symptom of you know our over politeness or yeah. in terms of uh-huh. not wanting to say anything or shame just potentially just yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah exactly sure so that's something I've heard quite a lot recently, which is
2: yeah. just that's so true. Uh, yeah. So, Sinead, would Phoenix receive a lot of cases concerning race discrimination in NI then?
5: So, my sort of area would be I would deal a lot with immigration and asylum work, and would be dealing with obviously issues, legal issues arising out of the Black Lives Matter protests. So, a lot of the clients I have generally are ethnic minority clients in quotations. And so arising out of that, you know, people might come to me with, you know, issues of race, hate issues and not being taken seriously by the police or and then we also have an actions against the police department as well in terms of, of where crimes aren't investigated properly. So, you know, through that kind of work I see a lot of racial inequality issues, specifically I, I mean I'm more immersed in immigration cases and asylum cases. So I see how the laws Immigration laws as a whole and generally the whole system are racist and designed to be hostile, which then pervades in the society and society's views of people who are seeking asylum, for example, or wanting to get out of the immigration system, obtaining citizenship. You know, the way the laws are structured around that are are inherently, in my view, inherently discriminatory towards people who, generally people of colour, Yeah. I suppose at Phoenix, we represent people who generally are, you know, against the state. So a lot of public law, public laws are focused. So we see a lot of cases in general where people are challenging the state, which is. Never easy in, in any
1: context. So, Cassie, I wanted to ask you. I think that we often find that conversations around racism are really centred in the US. And do you think that that leads to you know an erasure of conversation about racism here in Northern Ireland? And does that lead to people starting to believe that it doesn't happen here? Whenever it's so so focused in America.
3: Yeah, I definitely think that. I find that with like even when the George Floyd protests were happening here. Mm-hmm people were like you were asking people why are you protesting and they were Uh coming back with oh I'm protesting against police brutality in America which is what we were there for like that is one part of it but you're also protesting like BLM is so much more than you know just police brutality it's like it should be for everything um, and police brutality, obviously, is a top priority because it's so, so bad um, in America. But I feel like a lot of people dismiss the racism that happens in the UK and the US. And obviously, because I think it's more like because it's not videoed here, you know, there are uh-huh. just videos of police brutality over and over again, everyday racism that happens here all the time that we will experience isn't videoed. They just believe that it's not happening. And I think that just comes from, obviously, a place of ignorance, a place of privilege. And I don't think people mean it. Like, I don't think they mean, like, oh, I'm just, you know, protesting for police brutality. I just think here is just woefully ignorant and people just believe because it's obviously, like, 99% white, because racism isn't happening to them, Mm -hmm. that it's not happening here at all. Mm -hmm. And because our police aren't out there you know, like pushing black men to the ground or uh-huh. I can only really, you know, I don't even want to say that because I know the police brutality happens in the UK, mm. but I think because we don't see videos of it happening in the UK over and over and over again, people are just so inclined to be like, oh, you know, this country, is yeah. a racist.
1: we're not racist. Mm. I think when you when you compare how racism manifests itself in the United Kingdom, as opposed to places like America, obviously there's similarities. At the end of the day, it is racism but I think when you compare how it manifests itself there there are differences yeah and I think that's what often leads to people either saying no it doesn't exist it doesn't happen or they'll say you know oh it's not as bad or you know that as I said it's just kind of brushed under the carpet and it's just seen as sort of you know white noise that people can so easily ignore you have to realize that racism it doesn't it's not always just violence. There's, you know, there's institutional racism, there's structural racism, there's racism within the workplace, there's racism within schools, do you know what I mean, in education. And I think when people don't educate themselves on that and whenever they don't go out of their way, it's something that if you are in a place of privilege, it's so easy to ignore where it comes from, where people start to centre it in America because it is so violent and, you know, it's it's something that you actually physically see happening. I think they look at,
3: like, the racism that happens here. Because it isn't as violent, it's less than. So then, therefore, it's not Uh
4: huh. I would take a different stance, though. You know, during the war for independence in Africa, we were fighting all the European colonial countries in the 50s. These countries like Ghana started getting independence. And then the war intensified for independence against these imperial powers in the 60s. And the civil rights movement in America is happening. So these things happening parallel, they are happening. Remember the Brixton riots? Remember mm-hmm. remember the 2011 yeah. Mark Duggan riots in London? with Tot- Tottenham, London, all over the riots. There's always police brutality in the yeah. UK. Yes. I-, I have cousins who were at the age of 17, he was thrown into prison for a year. I-, I know kids, black children, who at the age of 11 in Belfast, they have had handcuffs put on them. So I, I know that these young African kids that age have been brought in for questioning in the police station at Masgrave. These things are happening. They're not being recorded. They're not being challenged. I know as my job now is working with the African community as capacity building officer. And I tell you, I can tell you a dozen incidences where police just abuse people. I'm not going to call myself a victim, but I have been on the receiving end of the the institutional racism, misandry noir, the mm. anti-black man. The I, I tell you one small example I had in one awful experience when I was 26 at the Equality Commission. An old woman accused me of asking her to sleep with me. Mm-hmm. And and she went upstairs and said to one of the colleagues, oh, this black guy, he's da, 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 he said this to me, but I don't want to do anything about it and then this she didn't know he was my friend he came down and said to me Tura you wouldn't believe what happened and he told mm-hmm. me and i said no man you must investigate it mm-hmm. it was investigated and they found it to be inconclusive and i mm-hmm. said to the chief executive of the quality commission who is still the chief executive Evelyn Collins i said can i see the statements it's mm-hmm. not it's not a matter of just telling me that it didn't it's, it's inconclusive can i see the statements of what everybody said she refused mm-hmm. she refused mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this new commissioner I wrote to her 2 months ago and I said to her, look, I've never settled my heart because you know these Karens accusing black men of trying mm-hmm. to do all yeah. sorts of things, you know. Uh, yeah. As a black man, it's like mm-hmm. this we are supposed to be rampant and uncouth and mm-hmm.
1: aggressive, over uh, yeah. and mm-hmm.
4: oversexed beasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we are treated in this way all the time by the mm-hmm. system. That fails to understand and accept its responsibility in dehumanizing us, our women and our people.
1: And I think I think that example that you said is is just a classic example of somebody knowing the power of their own privilege and using that as a way to oppress. So I mean, she she knew she, she knows her as a woman of her age and as a white woman, her turning around and accusing a black man, a young black man, of saying something like that to her. She knew the impact that that would have. So
4: I never took it, part, I never gained uh-huh. took part in, I was my 26 years old, I never uh-huh. gained took part in anything involving the Equality Commission uh-huh. until uh-huh. this year.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. And why would you want
4: to? I, it, is, it feels like, I'm going to use this example and people don't like it, it feels uh-huh. like every time I'm going to ask for help from these people, I'm going to my abuser.
1: Yeah, I'm going Uh to, you know,
4: I'm going to the person who's been abusing me and -hmm. and I'm asking them to to have compassion for me and to find Mm -hmm. solutions for me.
1: And I mean, it's like you said, at at the end of the day, you can't expect you can't expect the Nazis to fix Europe after the war, because at the end of the day, the the oppressor isn't going to fix the issue for you.
4: Well, I think it's damage, limitation and shame. Nobody wants to be called a racist. Even Boris Johnson, as much as he is a racist, he will never come mm. out and say I'm a racist. And the, yeah, and the thing is, it's not really important in whether or not he says he's a racist because mm. we know what he, we
1: know. We know that he is. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, people mm-hmm. don't want to fix a system
3: that's benefiting
1: them. Yeah, exactly. That's where the whole, you know, keeping things as is and people being comfortable, people being far too comfortable with racism, how how the system is so rigged against people of color. They're so comfortable with it because it benefits them. So why would you wanna change something that's gonna gonna benefit you?
4: If you don't like it, you're gonna leave. Like
1: Harry and Magda. <laughs> <laughs> So, Charlotte, I think you're going to ask questions about just social media then. So, obviously, over the
2: past months, everyone has been using their platform to spread awareness about the BLM movement. So... Tura and Cassie, how much has social media had an impact on the BLM movement in recent months?
4: The the capture of what happened to George Floyd by by social media and the way that just went viral. And even prior to that, you know, there's been other murders of other lynchings of black Mm -hmm. male and black women. You know, the social media has allowed these things to be exposed, and so it has been the vehicle with which, particularly your generation, Cassie, has yeah. been able to 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 use it to to raise awareness. And I think I have to take my hat off because I'm 47, and I've been doing this for all my life. And when I see young people like Cassie and Angel, her cousin, my daughter, doing this, I just feel I I feel it's so. Hopeful now that there's a generation that is educated and realizes that they've got to take back the streets, they've got to mm-hmm. take back the country. They don't have to ask for it, and they are they are assertive in the way that they, they make their point.
2: So would you say the death of George Floyd was the wake-up call many people needed?
4: I think it was the way he died. I think it was that mm-hmm. moment of seeing,
1: yeah.
4: you know, that man lying on the ground. and Calling ca-
1: for his mother. Uh, calling for, and saying, mm-hmm. I yeah. can't
4: breathe. And then people saying, can you not see the man? He can't breathe, man, do something. And the, the, the nonchalant look on that police officer's uh, face yeah, I
3: definitely think his death was, like, a catalyst for a lot of this because I've had so many people, like, even members of my family kind of saying I wasn't really aware of BLM before mm-hmm. George Floyd, which I, I don't know. I thought a lot of people were. Like, I thought kind of everyone knew about it, but maybe mm-hmm. not me being naive. But I definitely think his death would be, you know, a catalyst for a lot of it. Social media, I think the way, like Tara was saying, like, the way he died, it was so mm. violent and mm. I think you know there is people that say that that sharing those videos aren't doing it isn't doing any good and that mm-hmm. you can't be watching them but I think I have to disagree with that like I think why not you know although it's so unpleasant to see but that's mm-hmm. what's going on in the world. This is what reality mm-hmm. is. Yeah. is how black men and women are being treated in America and around the world like mm-hmm. said, you know Tara said in the UK as well. Like, this is what's going on. And how, how privileged are you that you're sitting at home in the comfort of your own home on your phone watching it and, you know, you're like, oh, I don't want to watch it. There's people that are in the streets seeing this mm-hmm. happen. That's people's sons, that's people's daughters.
4: And if you don't believe what has happened to George Floyd happens every day to us, here mm-hmm. is the 6th of June.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. absolutely, yeah. Yes. exactly. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it just blows my mind away, but because the fact that you were, you were out protesting... And you experienced exactly what you were protesting against. Yeah. It's just, it's it's, it's crazy to me. Um, Out in the mm-hmm. open.
4: And, and, yeah. and, and this is the thing about social media. It is so hard for politicians to hide behind. Because, you know, if you say something this year and think you can mm-hmm. say something different next year, they will yeah, play, you can't.
1: They, they'll play
4: it back <laughs> for you and say, yeah. <laughs>
1: You can say you can say something this year and in, in ten years someone will pull it out of the archives and hold it against you. So you can't get away with it anymore. You really can't. <laughs> and,
4: and and so maybe it is a seminal moment. I was at a webcast once and one of the politicians says the sixth of June is that moment where all of a sudden Northern Ireland realizes that, damn, we are racist. And this yep. is how and this is how we do it. And this is how we've done it. I've spoken about how, you know, I'm a policing family. So I I hope that other young people can become policemen. They can be helping promote the good relations in the community. They can police with integrity. They can bring positive policing into the community. It will not happen under the system that we currently have. The Uh system that we have, that we are trying to solve these problems that are part of the system is not going to create. We need a root and mm-hmm. branch. It needs to be root and branch. And, and a new system where these colonial systems or these colonial narratives are not able to even play out.
1: And I think people are so shocked whenever they hear people say that classic thing of defund the police and, you know, we don't need reformation. We need like to do away with it completely. But yeah, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day... How is change going to happen under a system that's working exactly the way it was designed to be working?
4: I think that your generation must actually begin to say, you know, we know how things work in Northern Ireland. We know Mm -hmm. how Good Friday Agreement comes and then St. Andrews comes and then they have a racial equality strategy, which is published Mm -hmm. just before Martin McGuinness, you know, in 2014. It's supposed to start from 2015 to 2025. And then five years later, only two of the 11 things that are supposed to be achieved Have been partially achieved. Mm -hmm. It tells us that the politicians do not have an appetite for diversity and equality.
1: When it comes to people being having been unaware i mean you can't be unaware of it now but having been unaware of the movement do you think that that came from a place of genuine ignorance and genuinely not knowing what was going on or do you think that it was more of a case of it was more comfortable for them to ignore it whenever it wasn't all over social media and it wasn't on the news or you know was it was it both i think it's a mixture of both Mm -hmm.
3: I I think they're ignorant, but I also think because it doesn't concern them, they don't Mm -hmm. care Mm -hmm. because they're not black. They're not the ones, you know, getting attacked in the street or really racially bad things, like really Mm -hmm. racist things being said to them. They just don't care because this place isn't that diverse. I,
4: I come from Zimbabwe 27 years ago. I live here in this country. I speak Gaelic. How many people in this country speak Gaelic?
1: Exactly. Uh-huh.
4: People are definitely c- in
1: the minority when it comes to that. Uh, now people- you don't
4: even know their history in this country. Mm-hmm. Never mm-hmm. mind. They don't even know about the famine. They don't even know that it, at one point Ireland had ten million people. Ten million people, where did they all go? Yeah. yeah. They mm-hmm. if they gone in the famine. Yeah, mm-hmm. some died, some migrated. So migration yeah. is normal. But the the racist narratives that are permeating this country are mm-hmm. historical.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of people have been educated. I know myself, I've been educated through social media on certain terms relating to racism, such as microaggressions, formative activism and white privilege. Cassie, could you explain what these terms mean and maybe explain just some ways that we can go beyond just posting on social media about these problems and actually you know help the community so with microaggressions like some that
3: have happened to me is like so I'm biracial so obviously I'm Mm -hmm. black and white so a lot of people would say to me oh you're not really black and I'm like what does that mean What, what do you mean by that and what really irritates me with that is because they associate blackness with like negativity so if I do something they're like oh you know that's not very black or you know Mm -hmm. or I'll get like the opposite where they're Mm -hmm. like oh you're so white
1: yeah yeah I know that's such a classic one yeah what are you talking Mm
3: -hmm. about like what what is what is it to be black and what is it to be white because Mm -hmm. what you associate blackness with is not what I associate it with I associate it with power with greatness with you know being smart with change with Mm revolution. You're not associating blackness with that. You're associating it with being a thug. Black Mm. is
4: bad and white is right.
3: That they
1: really, really irritate me. I was just going to say, I was working in a clothes shop in Gannon and I had to do a refund for somebody and he told me his name and he asked me, do you need me to spell that for you? And I said, no, it's okay. And then he said, oh, well, you must be very educated then. And to somebody who doesn't get the undertones of what he said... You know, it might just seem like an offhand comment and I think it's it, it goes back to this whole intention versus the impact so i'm sure maybe he didn't intend it to come across as a negative comment and to him it's the conversation is probably completely forgotten but it's always said with me because at the end of the day the impact with me was that you took one look at me you saw that i was black and you assumed i wasn't going to be educated enough to be able to spell a common irish name and i think that that comes from you know those biases that are so programmed into everybody constantly it surrounds you in the media and in the news and everywhere and that's where that comes from these Microaggressions. Socialized. So, like I said, yeah, yeah exactly. Happens. People, yeah. people are socialized. He sees, he sees black, and he equals that to uneducated. Which is, like I said, that's where all these microaggressions come from. And you know, you face it every day. I mean, that was about a year and a half ago, and I had a really similar conversation maybe three weeks ago in an Uber, where he turned, my driver turned around to me, and he said, "Oh, you don't sound like I expect you to sound." So mm-hmm. it's it's constant, yeah. constant, constant.
3: When they meet me, that that I'm going to be American.
1: Yeah.
3: Like, I'm not Like, why would uh-huh. I, be I work in a clothes shop as well. And yeah. a girl had she actually accused me of stealing first and she described me as the colored girl. And then another guy was like, um, I don't know if you're from here. And I was like, why would I not be mm. from here? Yeah. Like, why would I not mm. be Irish?
1: It's so crazy in me whenever people think that way, because I mean, knowing how diverse Northern Ireland is and how, how much immigration there is. To turn around and assume that some yeah, there is a lot of immigration here, but to also equal somebody who's grown up here for most of their life or were even born here and to tell them you're not from here, you don't look mm-hmm. like you're from here. I think you can't turn around and say it anymore, you don't look Irish because Irish doesn't look one way anymore.
3: What does an Irish person look like? Because half the world, they're all really pale skin and ginger and we all know yeah. that's not true. And I would think, like, where are you from? And I'm like, mm-hmm. Belfast? Like, yeah. they're like, no, but where are you actually Were you from? Where are you really
1: from? Yeah. Uh, Do you know what yeah. I mean? And
3: it's just, it's unbelievable. I'm like, why mm-hmm. can't I be Irish and be black? Mm-hmm.
1: And what ways would you suggest in terms of people looking for other ways to, to go, you know, beyond social media and beyond sharing the infographics? How can people, you know, in their everyday lives try and actually make a change? Have this type of conversations.
3: Mm -hmm. Family, when they say something, correct your family and friends, when they say something wrong, correct them, tell them, Mm -hmm. you know, what's right.
1: Yeah. I think people are really afraid of confrontation and that's where the whole, you know, staying where you're comfortable and not wanting to have conversations that might be uncomfortable, but then that's how things don't change.
3: I always Mm -hmm. say, like, if you feel uncomfortable having the conversation, think about how comfortable I feel. When mm-hmm. I have, mm-hmm. you know, women and men twice my age coming over, petting me, petting my hair like I'm some sort of dog, implying that I'm not from here. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so dehumanizing. Stuff, like, mm-hmm. so that's how uncomfortable I feel. So mm-hmm. you, for one second, you need to, you know, get out of your head. You saying that you feel uncomfortable having a conversation with someone that's mm-hmm. with you, it's not good enough anymore.
4: People have to be made uncomfortable. The whole system has to be made uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was at a conference yesterday, which was hosted by the Arts Council, and they asked me to speak about my experience of racism in the Arts Council. And I told them, two hours later, they were saying, can you please give us the name of the person who did this? And I told them, and my hope is that Arts Council, if they don't pull their socks, they they may actually be slapped with the lawsuits because mm-hmm. at the prime of my dance career, I was stopped from accessing... Funding because of my slant on Irish culture, because I do Irish dance, and because mm-hmm. I, I, I have a certain take on culture, and mm-hmm. I was punished for, for over ten years. I, could, I haven't received any funding from the Arts Council. So, and when we talk about this institutional racism, a lot of people don't actually see how it actually plays out. So, mm-hmm. I, I want to invite Cassie and and yourself, Deborah, and all mm-hmm. you guys. We must have debunking clips we must be able to challenge some of these notions challenge some of these leaders and actually do things that actually say you know what we're not going to believe you anymore we're not mm-hmm. going to do as you mm-hmm. say we're going to take over the streets the streets belong to us stormont mm-hmm. belongs to us and if you guys don't uh, don't get your act together we are going to let we're going to let people on the BLM ticket to go to stormont mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. un- and until people actually say, okay, we are going to have a BLM ticket for people who are mm. going to implement the race equality strategy at Stormont. So mm. we're going to get as many people with a BL or BAME, whatever, LBGTQ. We must have people who can articulate the, I- the issues and concerns of people of color and people mm-hmm. who are minorities. Yes. But I tell you, the current parties in on, on power at the minute, very few of them are capable of doing it.
1: I wanted to ask you, Sinead, within government and the law, going off of what Tara said there, how can the law be changed to protect black people and other minorities? Is it a case of, you know, it's not just the law that needs to be changed, but the people that are enacting those laws, which I think everyone can agree that that's a huge problem. How do you think that just the whole legal aspect of it, how can that be changed to provide more protection for people of colour within the United Kingdom?
5: Within the UK, or do you think specifically in Northern Ireland? In Northern
1: Ireland, yeah. Uh
5: I think, well, as Turo was saying there about the racial equality strategy hasn't Mm -hmm. been met. I think a lot of lawyers in Northern Ireland have been advocating for a bill of rights for a very long time.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think
5: perhaps racial equality issues and recognition and, you know, building on Building on racial equality strategies should be formulated within any Bill of Rights. And I think that that's potentially the best way forward in terms of any legislative change in Northern Ireland it would be via Bill of Rights. And also that's that's legislatively, but if we think about how we can change it, you know, now would be our challenge you know, we, we are doing challenges arising out of out of the protests at the minute, things that are very go with courts. Um and I can't comment too much because it's ongoing litigation. But things like our challenges and addition that are, are important too because we are holding the bodies to account, like the PS and to account in their decision making. And at the heart of that has to be a human rights based approach. Ultimately that will be, you know, for the High Court, hopefully shortly. We're just I mean at the mercy of the court, as we said. But, you know, challenges like that, challenges against police decision making challenging other bodies at the home office or things like that in in, in terms of court but ultimately mm-hmm. that means an individual has to take that authority to court which is never going to be easy and it, it ultimately falls on the shoulders of one individual who has already been you know put to a detriment of some sort mm-hmm. so it's a very difficult thing for an individual to have to do but ultimately it is generally in the public interest, but we have a mechanism of our courts to do that as well as, you know, directing rights in a, right a, a legislative way.
2: So Sinead, could you see law firms here adopting certain programmes to ensure the representation of minorities in the legal profession? Do you think BLM has changed the future of law firms in NI? I'd
5: like to think so. I mean, I certainly know that whenever I was doing my training. I can't think of anyone who represented an ethnic minority mm. community. Mm-hmm. Generally our, our legal profession isn't usually representative mm. um or diverse, but there is a group that's been set up through the Law Society quite recently arising out of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. I think people I think generally not just the legal profession, but I think companies and firms and businesses across the board have taken into account Need for diversity mm-hmm. and the need for recognition of racial inequality as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think people are getting better at it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm certainly going to always advocate for it if, mm-hmm. if I possibly can. And I know, you know, others like-minded others will do too. And mm-hmm. certainly our firm does as well. You know, and I think I think that now is a good moment to push and advocate as much as we yeah. can
1: i think 100%. like tara said for things like that to happen it, it is a team effort at the end of the day because you have people who can use their privilege to help others bring about that change like i mean i had this, this statistic from the law society where only this is for england and wales just mm-hmm. um only three percent of qualified practice law are black a black lawyer like and you think like
3: I just think representation is so so so. It's important. so important, and I've never seen myself reflected in mm. court or yeah. like I, you know yourself. Like I've been down, you know, doing work work experience, when you go in, nobody looks like me. Like yeah, nobody mm-hmm. looks like me. Mm-hmm. And even kind of when I tell people, I'm like, oh, I study law. They're like, really. What yeah, no, I'm the exact same. It is the exact. They're
1: like, really? Oh, that you must be you hard. You? Like, you yeah,
3: you'd study like
1: fashion or something. Yeah, that it's very condescending. Mean. So I mean, it is. Have yeah.
5: seen the barrister, um, um Alexandra Wilson? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yes, that. I follow
1: her too. Yeah, I yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, I've been meaning to buy her book, actually. Yeah, I
3: really want to get it. I think my mom's get me it for Christmas because yeah, it's so important to like see yourself represented. Because I've I've never seen a black barser until I went on Twitter and found her. Yeah.
1: because I, like, I and ho- how I found her was actually from her story saying that I think in one day she was mistaken for she was a barster in court she was mistaken for a journalist or for somebody who was there you know like in their own case yeah, that had been arrested.
3: Like Taken for a defendant, and they told her to get out yeah like she uh-huh. three times to leave the court. yeah it's like no and there's your
1: there's not. your perfect example of a, of a microaggression happening right there mm. to somebody who's so fully qualified and it shows you that you can get so 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 far up and those biases are still going to be there regardless of of where you're at
3: they look at you they look at how you look and they're like oh she can never be a barrister that that's not yeah. what barristers look like and i'm like mm. well, why do barristers all have to be you know like old white men like yeah that's all people mm-hmm think of what they don't even think of women Looks yeah good. i know They're like, yeah what? A
4: woman <laughs> but you know you know one one of the things uh, what i ended up doing is i ended up studying law mm-hmm. and i graduated at the open university and my immediate point after graduating was what am i going to do go to the yeah. bar or and then i said to myself i will have to deal with the institutional racism and yeah. old boys network of the bar I am forty seven years old. I've got no appetite for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody can blame you for feeling that way. You really, really can't. I you know. Yeah, it's the type of thing where it's like you you know what you're in for when you're in a situation like that, when you know that you're going into such an established institution and network of people you know who you're going to be dealing with because that's, and, where, that's
4: where the racism hmm. was legalized
1: yeah and, and, exactly and and, yeah. And, and
4: and one of the funny things about it is that if you were to, to to look at how the legal system in the UK has developed you know it's not a crime to be racist yes. you know it's not a crime to be racist I mean come on you know, you know, they, it has to be accompanied with a criminal act. What ludicrous, racist idea, or in terms of even natural law, it doesn't even make sense.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think even, like, even we were doing, like, moot, we were kind of, like, deciding outfits and whatever else, and someone asked me, what are you going to do, with, like, with your hair? Like, it's kind of mm-hmm. crazy looking. And I'm like, "Yeah, hey, my hair? Because my hair isn't straight, you know, down my back, like... Wh- what do you I know that made me feel weird so I I straightened my hair for it I think that's like another problem that you know I'm saying probably all women because I remember my one of my human rights lawyer she was telling me a story how you know as a woman she faced discrimination because she wasn't allowed to wear trousers that was years Mm -hmm. years ago but I think as black women one of the problems is if you're becoming a lawyer you're you're thinking about things like your hair and yeah
1: other things Mm -hmm.
3: because that does have an impact people I often think that people see my hair before they see me
1: yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think w- with black woman you're you're dealing with the misogyny as well as the racism yeah definitely you know what i mean you you've got both things to deal with from
3: from the, all sides that aggressive black woman tag that's all yeah the stereotype yeah put on mm-hmm. it, constantly 24 mm-hmm. 7 i'm either called a bitch or i'm a too aggressive yeah or you know i am a very passionate person i'm very passionate about these subjects just when i'm talking like i remember getting into even in like uni and we're getting Mm -hmm. into debates and they're like oh calm down yeah
1: why don't you tell somebody else to calm down Uh tell the
3: fully grown man beside you to calm down yeah don't Mm
1: -hmm. don't tell
5: me hopefully you take that forward and start changing things you're in Mm -hmm. the right time to do it and i think it's definitely what the profession needs is is more diversity and more fighting more people ready for a fight yeah.
4: Well, we, exactly. I, I, through my work, I've set up a, an African diaspora legal group. And in it, there's a there's a judge uh, from Sudan who is now in Belfast. He's now a legal expert. He was a legal expert in Qatar. And he, he's part of the group of people who are sort of looking at and, and trying to help some of the members of our community because, you know, you have no idea how many... Black men are getting into trouble for just talking to a white woman in Belfast.
1: Yeah. And, and,
4: mm-hmm. and, and, and a few of them are refugees. Mm-hmm. And there's just, people don't have social skills to even know how to behave. Because, you know, some of, if you behave a certain way, you'd be considered criminal behavior. Yeah. yeah. Not, mm-hmm. You know, if you'd be considered uncouth and, un, 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 you know, a savage.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. Unruly.
4: Unruly. Yeah. A- and unfortunately, unless, I think there has to be some way that young people like yourselves who are studying mm-hmm. law mm-hmm. Uh, can begin to to interact with some of the, what, what is the lady from Gambia's name, the, the law le- lecturer at Queens? Dr.
5: Uh, Inferi- Dr. Brunja.
4: Ah, Brunja. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> She's a firebrand. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean when I say representation is so important and it's so important to have these conversations. I feel like we haven't even got into half of what we could have talked Mm -hmm. about. It's such a complex issue and it's so important to have these conversations and hear both the side of, you know, a black person who's faced, you know, that oppression in every aspect of Mm -hmm. their lives and then To also be able to turn around and say to a white person, this is what you can do and this is what you should be doing, you know, going beyond social media, even just within your own homes and within your own family. So I think this conversation has been really good. It's been so productive Mm -hmm. and I'll be really excited to get it out there and hopefully it will help a few more people that are on a mission to educate themselves more and try to, you know, unlearn all these biases that they've been so socialized to have.
4: With a revolution
1: yeah exactly exactly so hopefully this will be a part of it and it'll it'll inspire people to to maybe go a step further they'll take on board everything that was said by yourself and Cassie and Sinead guys volunteer Um,
4: volunteer with with your communities give them competent skills so that they feel comfortable and confident in Belfast and, and help them find ways of navigating some of the social narratives that are orange and green
1: well there's another tip so again, I just want to thank you all for agreeing to become a part of this. And I think the conversation that we've had here is really, really great. So thank you to Tara and Cassie and Sinead for joining us. And we'll see you next time.